Hi, this is Greg Anderson, and this is the Living in Carver County podcast. It's an insider's guide to the people, or insider's conversation, rather, with the people who make Carver County the best place to live, work, and raise a family. I'm very excited today uh, because my guest is going to be, it's a first on the show. It's going to be the first time that I've had anybody on the show who's from Iowa. So I'm very excited about that. <laughs> and now my guest, I'm kidding around a little bit because uh, my guest has got an amazing story. Um, my guest is Ellie Krug and Ellie is a, uh, an, uh, a former attorney, an author, a podcaster, a public speaker. Um, she even has a radio show on uh, 9.50 a.m. Um, she's also the winner of the 2019 Outfront Legacy Award. And what I thought was really cool in is reading the um, quote from the person who nominated her. Uh, it's an attorney from Fredrickson Byron. And he said, Ellie trains people to be more empathetic, compassionate, and inclusive of other people who may be different from themselves. And so with that, I thought this is going to be, I'm very excited because those are really core values with me and uh, with a lot of the people that we've had on the podcast. So Ellie, thank you so much for agreeing to be on today. I'm delighted to have you. Thanks for having me, Greg. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I'm really thrilled to be here. So one of the, um, the ways that we start is I uh, usually ask guests because a lot of times I, we ask guests to kind of talk about their story you know, to tell their, you know, where are you from? Where'd you grow up? We mentioned Iowa. And how is it that you came to be in Carver County? And, and I think people will find that your story is, is really interconnected to what you do. Sometimes with my guests, the, you know, their backstory doesn't have anything to do with what they're doing today, but yours are very intertwined. And so I'm really yeah. anxious to, you know, have you tell your story. Well, it's, it's a long story, of course, um, and we should probably just deal right off the bat. Um, and thank you really actually for that very kind introduction. I, I really appreciate that, but we should start right off the bat with why your listeners or your viewers um, are reacting a little bit to the fact that I sound like a dude, but look like a chick. <laughs> and so I'm transgender um, for those who don't know that or didn't uh, figure that out from the write-up on the on the podcast. And so I am a transgender woman. I, uh, for 52 years, uh, lived and presented as a man, well, first as a boy and then as a man, and um, transitioned genders in 2009 in Iowa when I was a civil trial lawyer with my own law firm in Cedar Rapids. I was actually the very first lawyer in Iowa to ever transition on the job. Um, and, uh, and there's a story, so um, in Greg, what I had said to you when we had started to set up this um, interview is that I have the <clears throat> dubious distinction of uh, being one of the relatively few people in the world uh, who has gotten a do-over and taken advantage of it. I, you know, um, I had this incredibly charmed life growing up in Iowa and then uh, eventually marrying my high school sweetheart, who was my soulmate. I still miss her a great deal. We were together for 32 years before it all fell apart because of my gender identity issues, stuff that I had attempted to suppress as I was growing up. And when I was, you know, an adult male, uh, presenting as a male, I've always been female in my head, but, you know, on the outside, I look like a dude. And 
Um, but eventually I could no longer suppress it. I, there was a moment of truth that I had, which feel free to ask me about that, but I could no longer suppress it at, at some point. And, um, and I have a saying that um, human authenticity won't leave you alone until you listen to it. And, and, and that is absolutely true, whether the authenticity is about your gender, like with me, or your sexuality, because I also <laughs> happen to be very attracted to men. Um, but, you know, authenticity shows up with you being a writer. Maybe you're, a, you know, an actor, a thespian. Maybe you're a singer or a musician. Maybe you're a hiker. Maybe you're a crafter. Maybe you are a fisher person. It just shows up in so many different ways for humans. And if we don't allow it to thrive within us, um, we suffer greatly. Um, and so that's essentially, so I was able to get a, a second chance at life to finally live as me. And that's what I'm doing. Okay, cool. And I, you know, feel free to share whatever you're comfortable sharing. I don't want to press you on anything that you're, you know, that you want, things that you want to talk about. I'm delighted to listen. You know, you mentioned the authentic, you know, being authentic and, you know, a, a friend of mine talked about um, how it's like, you're trying to hold a beach ball underwater, you know, and eventually, <laughs> you know, you eventually either by fatigue or something, something's going to manifest somewhere. I, in, in your I love that. And I love that metaphor. That's just really, that's a really great metaphor. I love that. Yes. So, so talk about how it is that you ended up and you mentioned that you, you know, with the, you stopped the story that you were in Iowa. And uh, so what, what led you to Minnesota? So, yeah, I came, you know, I, I transitioned the second Monday in May of 2009. So I came out to the world and said, no longer am I, you know, presenting as a guy with a guy's name. This is me, Ellie Krug. And it was a three-page letter to 200 clients and other lawyers in the community and, and in the state and, and judges. And I will tell you, overwhelmingly, the reaction from the legal community and many of my clients was, oh, incredibly supportive, the legal community in particular. I will never, ever forget how kind my colleagues were to me. And this was back in 2009, before there were really anything about transgender people in the news or you know, on TV or anything like that. And they were just incredibly kind. And I tried a jury case within a couple of months of coming out as me, as Ellie Krug. And after getting the jury to swear that they wouldn't hold my status as a transgender person against my clients, um, we won the case after four jury days, after four days of trial. And I thought that my law firm would survive. Um, and, but unfortunately, um, I, I had a practice, uh, I, I represented railroads and trucking companies when they hurt or killed people. And many of those cases were just big dollar exposure cases. I mean, we're, these were a million, multi-million dollar cases. And, and my clients were comfortable with me as a man trying those cases, but they weren't comfortable with me as a transgender woman, as a woman with a man's voice trying them. And I mean, not everyone. I had a railroad client that did not want me to retire. Um, but eventually um, my firm uh, began to disintegrate because I, I kept losing. I lost 50% of my business one morning when my largest client called me up and just fired me, just said, deliver all of all your files to our office by five o'clock today. So, um, so I had to lay people off. Unfortunately, they suffered as a result. 
But um, at that point, I'm like, I'm going to go start all over. I'm actually going to be me. I'm not an attack dog trial lawyer. I'm actually a kind and gentle human. <laughs> and so I moved to the Twin Cities where no one knew me. I mean, I had my brother, my brother lived up here, but no one other than that really knew me. And I started all over again in Sally. I mean, um, and so at least nobody was tripping over what I used to look like or tripping over my old name. I mean, the voice is still highly problematic around people trying to figure out what box to put me in, whether it's male or female. But I started out over here all over again and, um, and lived downtown Minneapolis uh, for 11 years. And then I moved out to Victoria to a brand new house in um, January of 2021. Um, and I came out here because I'm getting a puppy. <laughs> Jack, the golden, Jack the Golden Retriever is coming home in three days. <laughs> and, um, and I also wanted to get reconnected with the land. Um, I wanted to go back to Iowa, actually, because I'm an Iowan at heart. Um, but the state of Iowa is not welcoming to humans who are LGBTQ. It's actually not welcoming to anybody unless you are of white color, white skin color and are highly Christian. And I don't want, I don't say that to be demeaning to white colored people. Hey, I happen to be one, nor do I mean to demean Christians or religion. I respect all people. It's just that when the religion is used to suppress humans, um, then it gets kind of problematic. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, and I think that had to be a difficult decision. You know, I mean, home is, you know, when, when that foundational home shifts, that's yeah. always a, you know, that's always a challenge for people. It, you know, it, there's something about Iowa, you know, and I know we have this Iowa, Minnesota. Yeah, know, I had to get an Iowa joke in there. You know that I had no, to. No, 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 that's okay. But, you know, um, there's just something there was, I don't think any longer, but there was something special about Iowa. You know, it was a very, it's the kind of place to contrast with Minnesota, okay? And I don't want to bash Minnesota. It's my home now. But to contrast it, I'll just never forget. Um, if you approach, and, it, and maybe it's a little bit different. In the cities, maybe more difficult, colder in terms of approaching people. Hey, how are you? Okay. But, I, I, you know, I mean, I, I had been up here for a couple of years. I mean, I would go back to Iowa occasionally. But I remember the time that I stopped at, um, it was a Hy-Vee grocery store in Cedar Rapids. And I had bought some stuff uh, like wine and, and, and uh, flowers and some other things to take to a friend's house who was hosting me for the night. And I remember I was wheeling my cart to my car and there was a man and a woman by their car, you know, as they were, you know, loading their car and the man looked up to me and it says, looks like you're going to have a heck of a party. Hope you have fun. And it just struck me that, that was just not the kind of thing that I would, somebody would ordinarily do here in Minnesota. You know, now maybe out here in the burbs, I'm finding that people are friendlier, okay? Um, but it was just kind of 
telling about the, the kind of the attitude in Iowa. And part of that, I will tell you this, is that Iowans always historically think that they are second class. They are always apologizing for being Iowans. You know, and I, I think it's partly because, you know, the state, the state has enormous natural beauty, but it's not the kind of beauty that a lot of people see, you know, and so, you know, it's like farms and flat, you know, and they're, I think that they're brought up to think, well, there's nothing special about Iowa. So they're kind of always apologizing about that. And that, and that is very real. And that happens even to today. Okay. Um, whereas up here in Minnesota, nobody really apologizes about it. They're like, Hey, we got all these lakes. We got the, you know, Hey, we got the lake, the big lake, you know? And mm -hmm. at any rate, um, so. <laughs> no, we, we apologize <laughs> if we have good stuff, but we do it in the way that we have to explain that we got a good deal on it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you I, have go. A, yeah. I have a green egg, but I always have to tell the story of how I bought it from a client and it was used and he won it. And so it's by way of justify. I can have nice things as long as I can explain to people right. I got a good deal. <laughs> right, right, right. So anyway. There are so, little idiosyncrasies about the states. So that was, it's an interesting observation. Um, I want to shift a little bit into talking about your work. You know, what is it that you're doing now? And, uh, you know, what lights you up? Oh, geez. Well, so I am, uh, you know, so it's in, the, it's in the official bio. And hopefully when I die, the strip will print it. I am a hopeless idealist. I am someone who actually believes that individuals can make a difference in the world. That they can, I, I, I absolutely believe that a single individual can change the world. Okay, I'm not that person. All right, so please understand that I don't have those grandiose things, but I do believe that each of us can make a difference. And that comes from Dr. King and Bobby Kennedy. I was 11 years old when they were murdered. Um, and I'd started reading the newspaper when I was like seven. And at that time lived on the East Coast. And so, you know, a lot of images of Bobby Kennedy was a senator from New York before he was assassinated. And, and um, Dr. King, of course, um, was on the East Coast a lot. And so their words sank into me. They, I mean, they taught me, and this sounds so silly, but it is so true. They taught me that we have an obligation to make the world a better place. And it's not something to fit in between yoga and take out sushi. And so, um, so I went to law school because Bobby Kennedy was the lawyer um, to change the world. I was gonna be a trial lawyer. At first it was around environmental things. And, um, and then I got sidetracked um, first in my family to ever go to college, let alone law school. I realized because I have a very good work ethic, I could make a lot of money as a lawyer. And at the same time, I was trying to suppress who I was. And so, you know, shiny objects, okay, kind of divert your attention. You know, the old saying that an idle mind is the devil's playground. And so I just worked a lot as a lawyer and I was a good lawyer. I was actually a very good trial lawyer and, you know, batting average like of about 700. And... Oh. Um, but I made people cry. Hmm. I was an attack dog lawyer. That's why my clients liked me. And, and, and as it turns out, actually, Greg, I'm not 
I'm not an untapped dog person. As it turns out, I'm kind and gentle. And I actually believe in the goodness of all humans. I do. Even those who are intolerant of me, I believe they have good hearts. I just believe that they're afraid and they don't understand. And so when we're not, we don't understand things, we run away from them and, and we banish them. So the work to answer your question, remember, ask me my name a half hour later, you get the answer. Um, the work that I do, once I could no long, once I lost my law firm, and I could have rebuilt it if I wanted to, but at that point I was like, nope, I'm not gonna be a tech dog lawyer anymore. I'm gonna be kind and gentle human. And I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be the idealist that Dr. King and Bobby Kennedy taught me to be. And so, um, you know, I founded a legal access nonprofit um, uh, here in the Twin Cities. I, somebody else founded it. I was the executive direct, first executive director to get it off the ground. It was just on paper when they hired me. And that was to help low-income people connect with legal resources in the Twin Cities. And so that gave me a great, I started to build a network as a result of that. But beginning in 2009, when I transitioned, because there, nobody knew anything about transgender people, um, Sorry, um, host nasal drip. Um, so some people just started asking me to come and speak. What's a transgender? Come talk to us, please. And so um, I started to do that informally, but then I got so many requests, I created like a formal, you know, description of learning goals and objectives and how I would, you know, what I would talk about. And about curriculum. And yep. And then, um, and then, but it very became very clear to me, people were like, we don't only want to know how to be welcoming to trans people. We want to know how to be welcoming to anybody who is other or different from us. And so then I created this, what's really a, my signature talk or training called gray area thinking, uh, which is about human inclusivity, about how to make, it's a tool set on how to be welcoming to people who are different or other. I've given that talk more than 500 times across North America. People love wow. that talk. And then, um, and so when I ran the nonprofit, you know, people were still asking me, you know, across the country, will you come speak to us? And I, you know, and so I went to my board and I said, look, don't give me any more raises, just give me more weeks of vacation. And so what I did is I just took the vacation time uh, and, and went and spoke and it helped supplement my salary because some of that talk I get paid for, but not, not a lot. I mean, a lot of it was pro bono. Uh -huh. But then it became so very clear to me that my passion was with training and, and inspire, trying to inspire people to change the world. Um, I believe that change will not come from ordering people. It will only come from inspiring them and grabbing their heart. And so um, I just said, you know, and, and I got tired of asking people for money for my nonprofit, you know, that got like really old. And so um, uh, but the nonprofit was a success. I mean, we won an American Bar Association Award within three years okay. of being open, and it was just great. Okay, but but I went to the board and I said, "Look, I, this is my passion. I'm going to go open, create a company, and go do this work full time. Hire somebody, please." And I helped them hire someone. Unfortunately, it didn't work out, and within six months, my nonprofit went into the ground. I I don't don't even get me started about how much that hurts me. Um, but um, 
but I, so I founded a company and beginning in 2016, um, I just started speaking across America and, um, and it all worked great until March 13th. Of <laughs> yeah. <Friday. laughs> Lockdown has to, yeah, a lot of speakers had a lot of challenge last year. So, but I converted everything to online with the help of some allies and people that really believe in my work. And they're like, no, Ellie, we're not going to let you die. We're not going to let your business go away. God love them. And they're so grateful for them. And um, I'm happy to say that since uh, April of 2020, I've done more than 170 online trainings or events. Wow. That's my company, yeah. So enough, enough so that I was able to, you know, buy a house um, in Victoria um, and no, uh, no small feat. Can I just say one thing? Because I do want all of your uh, listeners to understand this. I acknowledge that I have great privilege. I am, as transgender people go, I will acknowledge I am the top 99.5% of transgender. I am like in that very, very, very top because I'm white in skin color. I'm educated. I did have some resources. I continue to have the ability to attract people who want to interact with me. Um, uh, I'm extremely lucky, okay? Except uh, I'm darn single, can't get a date, but we can talk about that if you want to, Greg. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about, uh, you, you know, you, you mentioned, you know, you talked about percentile or, uh, you know, like a scale in terms of the trans community. What is it about the trans community that that freaks people out so much? Oh, geez. I mean, sorry. No, that. no, 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 no. I no, I did. I wasn't geez because I was offended by the question. Such a great question. Um, well, I think first of all, we just have to put it in perspective. Okay, I came out in 2009. You know, this is now 2021. It's 12 years later. But for the transgender community, it's like 75 years later. Okay. That we we do need to acknowledge that the level of acceptance and 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 you know tolerance and then acceptance you know of transgender people has grown exponentially. Okay, and for that I and many other trans people are exceedingly grateful. But I think freak out is a really great word, and part of it goes to a couple of facts. One is it is if somebody comes out gay or lesbian okay, um, or bisexual, there's no work on the part of the person who may be the ally or the family member or the friend where this comes out, okay? You're, okay, you, and you don't even have to visualize anything going on in a bedroom, okay? All right, but there's really no change with your interaction with that human. When they come out as transgender though, I mean, it's like everything changes, you know? Appearance changes, names, change, pronouns change, clothing, dress. And so for many people, the, they react to that. They do freak out about that because it's kind of like, first of all, I knew you for 50 years as a man and you seem so happy. Are you sure this is really who you are? Okay, so, so there's the thing about, you know, is this just a choice? Are you going through a phase, okay? Did you get recruited? So <laughs> right. You get recruited. Right. And so there's that issue. Then there's the issue, once they understand you're serious about it, that, 
oh, now I have to go through all of these hoops, okay? I've got to get used to what you look like now. I've got to get used to new pronouns, new names. Oh my God, it's a whole different way that you dress and act. And, and for many people that makes them uncomfortable. And, and so, because it's- I mean, is it uncomfortable or is it fear? Both, both. So it makes them uncomfortable because they have to, you know, there's like, it's changed the order of the way they saw the world, okay? And that feeds into fear because humans, you know, the, one of the ways that we deal with the world is we get humans into groups, we group and label them, we get them into categories because that makes it easier. It goes back to when we were on the savannah and our ancestors saw something coming from 100 yards away and they had to figure out whether it was friend or foe. So they were getting it into categories like right away. Transgender people were starting like, hey, we're not in that category anymore. And that for many people, that does cause them to be afraid. There's also, of course, fear around. And these are, you know, I mean, there, there, are, there are elements in our society that stoke fear about transgender people. There are elements in our society that attack us and then they want their group to attack us. Um, and, and many times they raise money off of that. So, um, and, and unfortunately some of this, again, please, I'm not bashing religion, okay? Or Christians, all right? But there are some religions, some that are Christian, others, you know, that are non-Christian that are highly, highly intolerant of transgender people. Maybe even hateful would be the right word, which of course is an oxymoron if you're involved with religion, right? Uh -huh. um, and so, uh, and so, but then again, that fosters within an in-group kind of thinking, you know, this this dislike—that's a mild word for transgender people—and it makes us unwelcome in many places. Well, and that's, and that's kind of what leads to the bathroom conversation, right? Or the bath, the, the stoking the fear that, you know, that this is some sort of aberrant action that's right. going to happen to you because. Right. Well, that I'm a pedophile, you know, and I'm going to prey on, you know, little girls in the restroom um, or transgender men are going to prey on little boys um, in the restroom. Uh, you know, that transgender men is somebody going from female to male. Mm -hmm. um, I, so there, yeah, there's that, but I mean, Greg, I mean, it's even, I mean, there are transgender people that are murdered across the world and sometimes here in the US. I mean, we lost, I don't know, 50, 60 transgender people to violence last year in the US, you know, because they're transgender, that's why they're being murdered. And so, um, now I, I don't mean, I mean, there are black people that get murdered because they're black people. I mean, so I don't wanna just say, you know, woe is us only. Okay, there's a lot of intersectionality here. Um, and particularly black transgender women are murdered. Um, so, but, but my role, just let, let's just finish this up. I mean, but my role, what I try to do is get past those fears. I mean, I go to places where people don't understand about transgender people and or very well may be intolerant. Um, I, go to, I go to those places and have conversations with people and talk to them and try to educate them that there's nothing to be afraid of me. In fact, I'm just like you. I just have this different kind of story than you do, but I want the same things in life that you do. I mean, I want my children, you know, to succeed just like you want yours to succeed. I want to be free of physical or emotional violence. I want 20 minutes of peace, just like you do. And I want to love and be loved. Mm -hmm. 
many times that's kind of the basic human need right i mean it, ultimately that's what everybody wants i i, I think you know i, I I'm, I'm delighted to have you on and i appreciate you sharing so much i've got two friends two very close friends whose children are um transitioning and the the mental gymnastics that happened for one of one of my friends, I think I mentioned you on the phone. You know, he's a he's a pretty conservative guy. You know, I mean, like on the spectrum, he thinks Rush Limbaugh was probably a little too progressive. Okay, and right. so for him to have to get it to get a grip on this because this child had tried to commit suicide, and so for him to come and to, to make that shift, you know, it was fascinating to watch. Um, you know, his process. And how he, you know, for him to get to acceptance, you know, and I have another friend whose uh, child is transitioning actually in the opposite way and how the, the grace and dignity that the parents have, but the conflict is actually coming from siblings. Right. So, well, <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, and, and just watching it, cause these are people that I care about. You know, I, I mean, I have a sort of tangential relationship with the children. I don't know them well, right. but, but my relationships obviously with the parents and, and to see them going through this process, um, you know, it's hard to imagine something, um, you know, that would, is as challenging, you know, you have these expectations for your children, right. right? That this is how life is going to be. And, you know, you were talking about it before that, that mind shift of the work that's required on the people that are close um, uh, is significant. So, well, well, but underlying all of this is the idea that it's a choice. Okay. That you don't, right. you know, that you don't really have to be this way. I mean, I heard that a great deal. Okay. And, when I was transitioning and, um, and again, we're back to where we started. Human authenticity won't leave you alone until you listen to it. Because I believed, I will tell you, and I'll, I mean, listeners, listen to this, please. For 52 years, I believed that I could choose and stay a man. I, I absolutely believed it. I believed that, you know, if I only worked harder in my head or got the right therapist or drank the right amount of alcohol, or bought myself the right toys that I could stay married because I loved my wife with all my heart. I loved her so very much. And I had two daughters and I was certain that I would lose one of the daughters. I knew that I'd lose my wife if ever this ever came out. And I, I loved being loved. And I was fairly certain that if I came out as Ellie that I was pretty certain that I would, I was certain that I would be alone. Okay, for the rest of my life. And that's proven to be the case. But I will tell you, I had a moment of truth where I realized that if I didn't allow me to be me, okay, that I would lay on my deathbed. I'd have all the love in the world on my deathbed. I would have, I'd probably be a millionaire several times over by the time I was on my deathbed. And I realized on that moment of truth that none of that would matter. I realized that the only thing that would matter to me on my deathbed was that I had been a coward and that I hadn't been brave enough to be me. And when I realized that, and that was on the night of 9-11 actually, that's when I had that realization, 
And when I realized that, Greg, everything else fell into place hmm. because it was, it was clear to me at that time I was in my mid forties. It was clear to me there would be no way that I could live with myself knowing, knowing that by the time I took my last breath, I would hate me. I, and, and, I, and I, I would disrespect me. I, I just, I, it just was, it just all fell into place that night. Unfortunately, it happened. I mean, unfortunately, it was because of 9-11. And unfortunately, it meant that I had to hurt so many people. And I'm sorry, I tried to avoid it. And so if anybody believes that this is a choice, read my book, come talk to me. I'd be happy to have a conversation with you because I am here to tell you it is not a choice. Who you are, either gender-wise, sexually, a writer, whatever it is that makes you authentic, whatever it is that's the worm inside you, that's who you are. Hmm. I love that. That's a great message, though. So talk a little bit about um, how people can connect with you. You, you know, you mentioned the, um, the book, and I didn't, I, I didn't plug it. <laughs> I'll plug it. <laughs> <laughs> Getting to Ellen, available on Amazon. Um, Kindle, Nook, Kindle, Nook all, Apple. Yep, all, all places. And I will tell you, if any of your listeners are interested, if their book club reads my book, I will come to the book club. If it's local in the Victoria Chaska area, I'll come in person if you want, okay? If it's somewhere else in the country, I'll come virtually um, and won't charge. It's just my thanks, my way of saying thanks for people willing to let my words occupy a part of their brain for a while, okay? So, so but to answer also, I mean, um, if people want me to come and speak, um, for the most part, I'm, I charge a fee because this is how I pay my mortgage. Um, but sometimes I don't. Um, sometimes if it's a school organization, um, uh, you know, like some kind of a booster club or something like that, you know, or a volunteer organization, you know, I mean. We, what we are, Ellie, people. what are, who are your clients? I mean, what, uh, what oh, is, geez. you mentioned you've had a hundred, I mean, but it, do you have sort of a, I mean, you, obviously your connection with I, the legal community, but. You know, are there other groups that um, uh, tend to be uh, uh, good clients for you? I, you know, the last, uh, the last training, I, I did 31 trainings in January, excuse me, in June. Wow. Um, so the last training was to a church in Crystal, uh, St. James Lutheran. I, I speak to church groups quite a bit, um, but I speak with uh, Fortune 50 companies, uh, colleges and universities, um, law firms, a lot of cities and uh, counties and, and legal and, you know, governmental entities. Um, for example, uh, you know, the city of St. Paul is one of my clients. City of Carlsbad, California. I trained their city council. <laughs> I had to do that in the form of a public meeting, let me tell you. And um, no, I, there's really, it's all, all across the board. And people can go to my website at elliecrew.com. Um, E-L-L-I-E-K-R-U-G.com. Yep, I'll put a link and, in the show notes. Okay. Yeah, and, um, and they can 
I've got a whole section of representative clients. I mean, at this point, I have spoken or trained. I mean, I, I think I've gone over the thousand um, mark at this point, but if not, I'm awfully close to it. Okay. And then did you want to plug the radio show too? or? Oh, sure. If people <laughs> want to listen to uh, my show, um, uh, uh, and the show is LE 2.0 Radio on AM 950 that uh, airs uh, from at from 10 to 11 on Saturday mornings and from 1 to 2 on Sundays. The show is about idealism and idealists. So I usually feature a historical or present day idealist that I talk about. But then, um, assuming I can line it up, uh, we have what I call is the big interview. And I speak to people who are trying to change the world. You know, um, for example, um, I had um, Tori Allen from Midwest Arts, uh, who is the executive director of Midwest Arts. They just got a $8 million grant from uh, Mackenzie Scott, formerly Mrs. Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos, all right. You know, yeah. What they do, I mean, what they do is they use the arts as a way to foster communication between groups to break down otherness, to, to get people in a place where they have common footing and get to know each other. You know, um, last month or a month and a half ago, we had John Blake on from CNN. Um, he's a commentator. I had him on and interviewed him about his, he's got a, a view just like my view, which essentially is that the only way our country is going to get past our divisions, and I am so serious about this, is through people sitting down and getting to know each other, getting past our fear of other, getting out of our bubble of comfort and being in a space where we just start to talk and share about what's important to us. You know, I have like, I have this question that I teach about it and people are like, we're really paying you to teach us this. And I'm like, uh-huh, because you don't do it. And here's the question. Any, any human that you meet, anyone, all you have to do is ask one question. Do you have a pet? or a child in your life. And you have to say in your life because some people are childless, not by choice, you know, choice. Right, right, right. I understand. But if you say, if you have a pet or a child, if you ask, do you have a pet or a child in your life? Guaranteed to start a conversation that will go on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we won't be talking about my doodle because otherwise that's another 20 minutes, but. <laughs> there you go though, right? But you know? you, I, I listened to one of your other interviews and you had another question. Um, related to circumstance that I think might be helpful for uh, some of our listeners because I thought that was that was good because it's 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 a almost a scaling question um, uh, I'm not I don't know am I I'm doing sure. the am I doing my best under my curtain circumstance oh, oh, oh thank you oh yeah for sure so I mean yeah and so people I mean um, one of my trainings helped ask people to self-identify about a number of different things. And one of the, and I, in the old days, I had 19 different signs representing different identities, age, genders, you know, LGBTQ status, socioeconomic class, religion, compassion, family, and have them, I'd give them prompts, they go stand by the signs to represent their response to the prompt. It's very powerful. Um, online, we've converted it to a poll. But one of the one of, in that exercise, one of the prompts is identity I struggle with the most on a day to day basis. And Greg, everywhere I go, I don't care if it's big town, little town, blue place, red place, Bernie place. Everywhere I go, when I ask the prompt, the identity, what identity do you struggle with the most on a day to day basis? Somewhere between half, a quarter and half the room struggle with 
whether they're good enough or a failure. One of the signs says not good enough slash failure. When I trained uh, the Iowa state of Iowa judges and judiciary, 160 judges in the room, uh -huh. um, 40 out of 160 said that they struggle with whether they're good enough on a day-to-day -day basis. And so when I see that, it reminds me that one of the biggest hurdles to compassion for others is the absence of compassion for ourselves. Uh, because when people don't have self-compassion, it is, you know, when you're beating yourself up, it is really easy to beat other people up as well. And it's very hard if you're not, if you're not good with you, it's very hard for you to want to go the extra distance to be good to someone else. So when that happens, I tell people, I say, listen, why can't we just simply be good enough? And why can't we ask ourselves one question every day, which is, am I trying my best under current circumstances? Yeah, always have to throw in the current circumstances because they're changing all the time. But if your answer back is, yep, I'm doing my best under present circumstances. I mean, really, why can't that simply be good enough for us? Isn't that what we teach our children? Try your best. Yeah, I like that question. And, you know, you, you mentioned about, you know, if you're not okay, you know, that notion of hurting people hurt people. And, um, I, you know, so I think there's probably a lot more people that haven't had it explained in such a nice, succinct way so that they can have a frame around it, but rather it just, it just um, presents as a, as a sensation, you know, like a, a feeling. And so, you know, until you can put words to it, it's hard to figure out how to um, sort. Does that well, make sense or? No, at least in does. my head, that's how it seems to be. Until I can put a label on it, until I can define it. And the more labels I have, the more I can differentiate between some of these experiences. You know, if the only sensate, if the only word I have to describe something, some kind of stimulus is pissed off, then, you know, everything pisses me off, right? And where if right. it's like, you know, if there's a degree of, you know, if I can set up a varying levels of degree, and I have a category for it, it seems like it helps me to process things a little bit better. Well, so. I tell, you know, I tell people that, you know, I'm no one brilliant. Okay. And, and I tell people, um, particularly with gray area thinking that 98% of everything I'm going to tell you in the next hour and a half or two hours, you already know 98%, you know, I'm going to give you 2% new. The problem is we're just not paying attention to a lot of the things that are coming at us or a lot of the things that we're feeling. And so all that I am, and literally, I'm just a dot connector of, of things that you already know. I just connect the dots. And for some reason, and I'm just so incredibly thankful about this, Greg, and I do not, I do not take it for granted. But for some reason, people really like my work and they like me. And I, I don't, you know, I don't know why. I just, you know, I don't know why. Um, um, I, I train. Well, you know, authentic, people, people are starving for authenticity, though, Ellie. You know, I mean, if when you're when they and they recognize something that's genuine versus something that's artificial, and I think, you know, at least that's uh, from you know 
from the cheap seats where I am in terms no. of noticing things. It seems like that's something that's there. You know, it, 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 when you see something that's um, that's real and, and, you know, it's the difference between like an essential oil and a Glade plug-in, right? I mean, there's, there's a difference. And when you, once you start to, well, once you start to experience the difference, you make those distinctions, right? You know, I'm, lo I'm loving your metaphors, Greg. I, really am. I mean, these are just, you know, in your analogies, they're just, no, they're just really, you know, great. But, and maybe we should just wrap it up with this. Okay. Um, and, and let me just say this. All right. And maybe it is about my authenticity, but I will tell you for 52 years, I didn't have that. And I can't think of a, a more horrible outcome in life than to never have been able to have had it, okay? And even though there was a lot of loss and I hurt so many people, and even though I'm alone, okay, I'm not loved. I don't have a special person in my life soon to have a golden retriever puppy, but, um, but Greg, I, and I want to make sure that everyone understands this. I have no regrets. I am, I am darn grateful, darn grateful that I got to be me. And, and it didn't happen alone. I mean, there were people along the way that helped me. I had some right therapists, but boy, and my brother, my God, my brother, he was my rock and, and I've been best friends with somebody for more than 50 years. He was the quarterback in the eighth grade football team. I was the frontline guard. Mm -hmm. and so I, it didn't happen alone, but I just got to tell you, I am just so grateful and I have no regrets at all about finally getting to be me. I'm just, I, I just can't imagine what my life would have been like had I not allowed me to be me. Well, that's a great way to end. And I really appreciate all the time. Um, I know we went a little bit over what you had allocated, but um, you know, I appreciated the, um, the sincerity and the, um, and just, you know, you being you. So thank you so much. Um, I will put links to your website and to the book um, on the show notes. And uh, I'm going to stop recording now.